Welcome to the New Era Property and Business Podcast. I'm Rick Gannon and I'm a property investor, trainer and mentor and best-selling author. If you are interested in any of our property mentoring services, then please contact me via my website, which is www.neweraPropertySolutions.co.uk. And please don't forget to take a look at my five times best-selling book, House Arrest. House Arrest is a manual for new property investors which shows you how you can replace your income by investing in property. That's available on Kindle, it's available on paperback and it's also available on the Audible store. Hi everyone and welcome back to today's podcast and today we have got a very experienced construction and project manager, Martin, Martin Rapley from Kent. And Martin's been in the property industry for quite some time now and has got a wealth of knowledge in uh, refurbishments and construction management, HMOs, flats, pretty much quite a diverse portfolio. So Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Rick. It's great to be here with you. So, Martin, could you give our listeners a brief resume of your experience in property and what it is that you actually do at the moment? Yeah, sure. So so I got involved with property 30-something years ago when I left school, took a job with building contractors and, um, and got involved with property through development and refurbishment and reconfiguration. Um, on behalf of building contractors, I worked uh, initially as a quantity surveyor, later on as a project manager. Um, and looking back, actually, a lot of my clients were property investors, although I didn't actually know that at the time. And then about 15 years ago, uh, myself and my wife, Sarah, bought a single let flat, thinking that we were going to get into property and it was the way forwards. Uh, uh, we, we picked it up in a good area. We managed to refinance it a few years later. But instead of reinvesting what we'd got, we improved our own house and each bought ourselves a nice car um, and kind of just dropped the whole idea about property investing until about six years ago, I set up my own building business um, and stumbled into property uh, networking events to uh, as a as a source of clients and it was only by meeting the property investors there and starting to understand a little bit about property investing but importantly what i really realized was that a lot of property investors had no one independent to turn to to help them with refurbishments and construction they were very much dependent on the the builders who first of all didn't really know anything about property investing and didn't know about finance and often didn't run a particularly good business um, um, and so because uh, there was this seemed to be this gap in the market I decided that was the gap I was going to fill so went off and you know found out more about property investing um, and now bring my construction knowledge and skills to my property investing knowledge and skills and, uh, yeah, and offer a, an, an independent consultancy service for property investors. So what does that mean, an independent consultancy? So if a new investor uh, met you at a networking meeting and, you know, what, what service do you provide? What, it, what does it look like? 
Uh, yeah, uh, a, a, excellent question, because it, uh, I suppose until a few years ago, I couldn't articulate that myself. But uh, of course, yeah, as uh, in the way of running your own business, you get better at articulating what you do. So the grassroots service I, I provide is a hand-holding mentoring service for property investors that are converting or refurbishing property they they kind of perhaps are quite happy doing it themselves but they want it's just the reassurance that someone's on the end of the phone on a regular basis uh, just to touch base with just to see that nothing's got missed out i i end up teaching them a lot of kind of shortcuts things that i've learned over the years to to make that process a little bit easier allied to that i i run some training courses um, and then I, I do budgets for investors that are trying to you know, establish whether they've got a good deal and, and aren't particularly good uh, you know, working out numbers. So we do we do budgets together. And then my high end clients, uh, you know, I provide a full turnkey service. So some of them literally come to me and say, I'm buying this property. I need it refurbished or converted or, or whatever they want. Um, uh, literally hand me the keys and um, you know, off I go and manage it all the way through for them. And I know that I've had a little bit of a snoop on your LinkedIn profile, as I do, as an ex-police officer, yeah. you would expect. And oh, I know yeah. that you've worked over the years on some really interesting buildings. So what would you say the, the most interesting one was and why? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, um, as you say, I've, I've done a lot of work in a, a lot of work in London, um, the Tower at Canary Wharf, Victoria and Albert Museum, British Museum, police stations, Bank of England, Stock Exchange. Um, I, th- I think the, the, pro- the, the, the client that I w- enjoyed working for the most was probably the Victoria and Albert Museum because they did some stunning projects They um, uh, and they wanted every single project to be different. So there, there was no repetitive work there. Uh, it, it was it was good quality work, but of course it was work that was primarily visible to the public at the end. So it was very easy to walk in there later on and say I was involved in this scheme. And and uh, I, I think one of the nicest ones in there was we we lifted up uh, a floor. We were refurbishing a gallery. We lifted up a floor and found the original mosaic tiling underneath it. And uh, this mosaic tiling had been damaged over the years. Uh, but but the museum decided that they wanted to reinstate this mosaic tiling um, and leave it in the new finished gallery. And so they asked us, to, we took down all of our hoardings and we, we actually built a viewing area so that the public could actually see this mosaic tiling be refurbished and restored. It was almost like a, a visual um, a, a, a visual gallery that was in there. For, for the next three months whilst we repaired all of this floor. And then we went back and started fitting out the gallery on the original scheme that we'd planned. So that was a, yeah, that was a great thing to do. And really and, nice to find that surprise. And sometimes, you know, you see this mosaic flooring, it's covered up and sometimes people put carpet on it and put glue down on it. And it's just, oh, it's just, it's painful, isn't it? Well, that's it. And they cut holes in it and there was cables running through it. So we pulled out all of those and had to get the specialists in to repair it. Okay. But as a result, it was, you know, once it was finished, it was a really, a really, it was a nice finished product. And of course, um, the museum were able to tell the story, as museums are particularly good at doing, of, you know, just how they found it and you know, how they restored it and what it was all about. 
So as a, Martin, as a, a project manager, what would you say the most challenging thing is about your job? <laughs> mm. um, well, I suppose I suppose the, the, the most challenging thing about anything relating to construction and refurbishment is it very seldom goes to plan. So actually, the success of the project is generally how well you manage the uncertainties that, that come along. Um, and, and how you deal with the changes, um, which which sometimes can be client generated, but more frequently uh, is is generated as a result of finding something. Just like that mosaic floor, we didn't know we were going to find that, so we hadn't expected to spend two and a half, three months restoring it. So, I think as a project manager, it's all about dealing with change and managing that change, and managing all the knock-on effects of that change. Because as a result of one little thing like that, all the other tradesmen have got to be delayed by a certain period. And it's about you know, helping them understand as early as possible that there is an implication, but also um, you know, making sure they're lined up, ready to come back when you do need them back. So I understand that for the, some of the larger jobs, people would take on a you know a construction manager or a project manager. But what's your thoughts on the the smaller properties? So a lot of our listeners are HMO investors and buy to let investors, and they would be going out and buying a small property and converting it into you know a five or a six bedroom HMO. Do you think that's something that they should take on a project manager for? Um, realistically, they can't justify the cost of taking on a project manager. I have people approach me about helping them with those smaller projects, and it just doesn't even, you know, it, it, they can't justify the fee of a project manager. So they've got to pretty much do the project management on their own. And that's really why I offer a mentoring service so that those people that need to do it on their own but still want someone on the end of the phone. Uh, to help them with the challenges and help them understand the process. Mm. Um, you, you know, I'm there with that kind of service, really. And and that was something I learned you know, probably three, four years ago, uh, that, that there's a kind of sweet spot. And, and until the projects, you know, are probably at, you know, at least 100, 150,000 pounds, I can't add massive value as a project manager. I can only add value as a mentor and a trainer on those smaller projects. And I think it's important that, you know, people do have mentors when it comes to doing things like this, because there's so many things that if you're not used to converting projects and you're not used to moving into a regulated industry, then people can get so wrong. Silly things like, you know, what contract to use with the builder? Do I need to use a contract with the builder? You know, do I need to have anything in place? For things like that, people kind of overlook, don't they? And, you know, it, it, and it can be quite costly if they get it wrong, can't it? Well, a- absolutely. And, and I mean, we've all heard the saying, you don't know what you don't know. Uh, and it's exactly the same, you know, with the refurbishment side of things. I've actually worked recently with some small development contract you know, businesses that have have got into property investing and they've grown and grown and grown and actually the the they've they've picked up some bad habits very early on and they've just carried on replicating them but of course they've kept making money but they've perhaps just not made as much money or not made the, the project hasn't gone quite as quickly or as smoothly as it might have done and it, and sometimes it just takes me yeah, a, a few conversations to close up some some gaps they've got in their process just to help them get it to run smoother but of course with the smaller jobs there is that 
there's so much less margin in the in the deals anyway. Uh, you know, everyone, uh, you know, you're, everyone's trying to refurbish on su- such a tight budget that the all I can hope to do is just make the whole thing smoother. Mm, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the most common questions that we get asked is, how much is it going to cost me to convert a house into an HMO? And it's almost an impossible question. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's something that is, how can we help or how can you help a new investor get to grips with what a rough estimate it will, it will be in, in order to be able to convert a property into a HMO? How, how do they do that if they don't know themselves, if they're brand new into the business? It, 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 I'd, I'll be honest, Rick. It's probably the first question I get asked by by all new investors, and and actually not just new investors. Some some experienced investors as well will ask me the question: How do they work out the budget? Um, and and actually the the first thing I find, uh, well, a, a number of errors that investors make is, um, first of all, they've heard or read of of other people's figures for refurbishing. Um, which were probably perfectly right for the for the deals that those investors were doing. But of course, as we know, every single property is different and every single property needs a different amount of repair and a different amount of conversion. So, so the first uh, thing is to not assume that your job is anything like anyone else's um, and don't try and use other people's figures. And then the next, the next thing is to break the job down into manageable chunks. I see a lot of people that see a property and they say to me, oh, I think it's £30,000 to, to refurbish it or convert it. Um, uh, and, and big round numbers like that are hard to justify. And I say to them, well, start with writing down what you're going to do. You're going to put in a new kitchen and you're going to put in a new bathroom and you're going to take a wall down and you're going to build another wall here and you're going to redecorate and maybe rewire or central heating or whatever. And once you start breaking things down into manageable chunks – you can then quite easily find reasonable numbers that work to those manageable chunks because most of us actually know the, the cost of things. We, we roughly know that we can buy a, a small kitchen for a a £1,500, something like that, maybe a little bit less um, in sales and deals like that. Um, we roughly know it's going to cost us about £1,200 to fit it, and, and I'm in Kent, so I'm kind of talking London and South East prices. Um, so, so immediately we can start putting together sensible budgets, whereas a, sens- a budget of £30,000 doesn't mean anything. But now we've got £2,500, £3,000 for a kitchen, that's it. And we, we can then find another price for the heating, another price for the bathroom, another price for the wall. And actually building up the budget on a line-by-line basis actually will get a much closer figure than most people will realise. I know there's going to be some people listening, Martin, that are saying, £1,500 for a kitchen? What are you doing? Stealing it? Where do you source, <laughs> where do you source all of uh, these kind of items? Where do you buy them from? Uh, uh, okay, so, so two, two things on sourcing. First of all, on materials, always go to the builder's merchants. Go to the trade places where the trade suppliers, uh, the trade purchasers go to, um, because you will generally get better deals um, and merchants like that are generally able to do deals. Um, so, and, and, and actually, you know, if you, if, you want a, if you want a good price on a kitchen, go right at the end of the month when they're trying to get their sales figures up for the month. Go right at the end of the year, just before Christmas, and there's some good opportunities there as well. 
Um, so you generally get good quality prop uh, project, uh, sorry, good quality products from uh, the merchants. Uh, and, of, and of course, most investors come across uh, LMPG uh, in their time. And of course, LMPG can help with some you know, really good pricing on kitchens uh, and, and boilers and, and decoration products and a number of other things as well. So um, it, is, it is about sh- you know, shopping around. Um, so yeah, you can get a small kitchen for fifteen hundred pounds. That that's perfectly achievable. And if you've happened to go in at the right time and there was a bit of a sale on, you might even get it below that. And yeah, don't be afraid to ask. Ask what these merchants have got that's in the sale. They might have. They they might say, well, it's shop soiled. But remember, shop soiled might be perfectly all right for your uh, your your property. Bearing in mind that. You know, once it's onto its second tenant, effectively it's shop soiled anyway. So you, you know, subject to no serious damage, you might be able to take shop soiled goods and things like that. And uh, that's the way to keep the price down. Just to ask: Is it possible to haggle? Um, so you you can haggle. I don't I don't tend to um, I don't t- tend to teach my students to haggle. I, I tend to teach my students to ask the question. If they can, uh, if merchants and it goes to contractors as well. So if you've got a price from someone to install something or or, or carry out the, the refurbishment, I tend to uh, you know, use use words such as, "Can you just double check that you've got the right figure in here?" Because it feels a little bit high for me, and I don't ever talk about the bottom line figure. So I might say, "Can you just double check that the price you've quoted me here for the kitchen is correct?" Because I've I'm sure it just feels a bit too high to me. Um, and then what you're doing is you're kind of giving permission for the contractor or the supplier to go away and, and and double check it. And what you'll find is frequently builders will come back and say, oh, actually, yeah, I did add something in twice or I added in something else I'd put in later on and I can take a few hundred pounds off. And what you'll often find is, um, first of all, you can a few hundred pounds here, there, and everywhere, and you can't do it on every item, but you can certainly do it on some big items. Um, you'll be able to take that off the bottom line price. But importantly, the builders then offered that to you, rather than you asking for two percent off the bottom or ten percent off the bottom, which is psychologically a a hard thing to do for some people, but b um, your, your builders don't entertain that kind of speak. And what what you'll end up doing is. If you ask them to price the next job, they'll only put 10% on anyway, so that you can take 10% off. It's much better to just talk about some big lumpy items, ask them to double check the price, ask them to verify they haven't miscalculated it. And you will find they will, whether they have miscalculated or not, they'll see it as a reason to just give you a little bit of a saving. And then it's them offering to you rather than you begging to them to reduce the price. That's a really good piece of advice. Really good piece of advice. The other thing as well that um, comes across our path quite a little bit is um, builders. And we talk about builders, and I know that there are going to be some builders listening to the podcast, so maybe they can phone in and answer this question as well. When I I talk to new investors, one of the one-of, because there's several stumbling blocks they come across, is finding a builder that will actually turn up to do not only the quote to begin with, but to turn up to do the actual job. So what, what is it at the moment? I mean, are, are, we, are we a national shortage of builders um, because we can't seem to get hold of them? Or is that just normal for the trade? Um, I, I suppose there's always, there's, in, any, in any industry, there are always you know, people that will let you down and not, not do what you've agreed to do. But in principle, at the moment, 
we are short of builders uh, since uh, the, the recession of 2000, 2007, 2008, uh, running on into nine and 10, a lot of small businesses, a lot of small building businesses uh, went to the wall. They, they went off and went into other industries. So we're short of builders. We haven't really been um, bringing new tradesmen through the apprenticeship route. Um, for, we, we haven't been bringing many through for years. We've been relying on a lot of Eastern European labour, which are you know, perfectly good, but of course with questions over over Brexit, some of those aren't around. So, and and of course, we are now back into a booming market. So generally, there's a lot of factors that are meaning builders are not short of work. And uh, so, so the way to the way to get builders is to actually demonstrate that you are um, well aware of what you want. So, so um, yeah, that that's all about you know, if possible, have a, a schedule of works written down. Because that demonstrates that you know what you want, and builders really want to get in, build out for you, make some money, and move on to the next job. They don't like um, indecision, uh, procrastination, changes of route, or changes of direction. So, uh, so coming over as confident that you know what you want, um, offering them a good scheme, and and then and then the way to find the good builders is actually. Um, you can try it through networking, but most most people won't actually tell you of the good builders because they're using them themselves. So the best way to find builders for yourself is to actually walk around the local area where you want the work carried out and find builders that are working locally and go in and talk to them whilst they're working in the middle of the afternoon and uh, see what they're doing. And the, the, a lot of them are really proud of what they're doing and they'll invite you in and they'll show you what they're doing. Um, and be quite pleased with it. And then maybe go back in the evening, speak to homeowners, just get a second uh, a second testimonial from them. And um, you, you'll find some really good builders. And for the smaller, for smaller projects, converted houses into HMO, you're not going to find builders on Google. They're not going to be in sign written vans. They're just going to be working out in the houses and, and and yeah we all know that when a builder starts work on a property the first thing he does is put his signboard out the front that's because that's how he gets his work and you've got to use those signboards to find those builders and 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 find the builders and you'll find the right you'll find someone you've got a really good rapport with and and then you'll just build a relationship and um, yeah, you'll find the one that you want to work with. Is there any particular payment structure that you should follow when paying builders, or is it just something that you agree together? Um, yeah, absolutely. There's no uh, there's no hard and fast rules. I suppose there's only one rule I would ever say about paying builders, and that is don't pay them up front. Um, if if you're paying builders up front, you're taking a massive risk. Um, uh, and and in reality, they don't need payment up front. They might say they need it for materials, but you have a look at most projects. There's not much material in that first week because they're stripping out all the old carpets and the old kitchen and bathroom. So that all they've got to pay for is some labour and a skip. So be very careful paying anyone up front. What After about, that, what about what, holding payment back, Martin? Is that, is that something that's that's normal in the trade? Um, yeah, so a lot of builders would be happy to if you held back, say, 5% until it's complete. On the smaller projects, you won't normally get anything beyond completion. Um, you might you might negotiate another month or so, 
Um, but on the bigger projects, certainly, uh, yeah, we'd hold payment back for for six months or even up to a year on, on some projects. But smaller bits, you know, just just yeah, you know, try and hold back a little bit, five percent until the end. It's just an incentive uh, to, to yeah, you know, just to incentivise them to finish and and, and you know, work all the way through to the end with you. But I think if there's one tip on payment, sorry, Rick. I th- I think a really important thing with payment is whatever you agree with the builder, stick to it. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's, that's some really it. good advice. What sort of warranties can we expect to have from our building team? Um, so, so there's no, uh, th- there's nothing formal for regular building works. Um, and so, so if you, uh, you may well be able to agree that, uh, builders will give you some kind of, um, uh, uh, what we would call a, a, a defects liability. So we might be able to agree a three-month defects liability period. That means that within three months of finish, you they, they may well come back and rectify things for you if they're not quite right. The smaller the builder, the less chance you've got of being able to agree those kinds of terms. So it is really about finding things yeah, right at the end of the project. Of course, you will get things like warranties or you'll get certification for gas installations and adaptions and electric installations and adaptions um, and maybe new windows relating to uh, fence or warranties and things like that. So do, do collect those warranties or those certificates. But as far as the general building goes, it's quite hard on the smaller projects to agree some kind of warranty, um, uh, and it, and it's just you know it's as good as the builder is really. And what about building regulations? I know that um, you know there's several things that you need to consider with any refurbishment project, and even if you're converting a house into an HMO, there are certain things that we have to do, and one of which can be building regs. Would you expect your builder to provide that service as well? Um, no, I'd normally recommend not to ask the builders to provide that service. Um, and, and the reason for that is um, the, the, the uh, building control department at the council, or you can use approved inspectors, if they are employed by you, then they are acting on your behalf and you know that they will look after your interests. Whereas if they are employed by the builder, they any defects or any problems, they're reporting back to the builder and you're not necessarily aware of those shortcomings um, and therefore, you could get to the end of the project and there's no certificate and you don't know why and the builder's just giving you a lot of story. So I tend to say always appoint building control, direct yourself. It's the same cost whether you do it or the builder does it, but then at least the building control surveyor is talking to you, liaising with you and working for you. And importantly, one of their roles is to help less experienced people, bearing in mind that a lot of their uh, a lot of the clients are homeowners, um, and and one of their roles is to make sure that the builder is looking after the client. Um, so yeah, employ them direct, and then you'll get that service as well. When you say employ them direct, Martin, do you mean go private, or would you go and approach the council to ask them to come and do it? Um, op- options are either way. I tend to go with private um, approved inspectors. Uh, the advantage of the approved inspectors is. They generally cover a bigger geographical area than just the local authority. So if you're investing in two different local authority areas, say, 
you could be dealing with the same approved inspector um, from an approved company, which, of course, allows you to build up relationships and rapport as well. Um, the approved inspectors are sometimes a little bit more expensive local, than local authority, although actually one recently, he was he was less than a third of the price of the local authority of, of a price I got, uh, a fee proposal I got recently down here um, in, in the Croydon area, actually, South London. We had a quote from the local authority of £6,000, um, and it was about £1,700 from one of the local approved inspectors. So, yeah, there are another... Yeah, there are now another avenue and, a, and another source. Um, and the advantage of a lot of the approved inspectors is they've they've got other and previous experience. So they'll often give you a lot more support, whereas the local authority will very much come come down and it, it, it's black or it's black or white. You mentioned earlier about specifications and having a, a specification sheet or something to give to the builder. How do you write that if you've never done it before? Um, so so there's a, the big golden rule about this is don't feel as though you have to write it in anything, any special way or clever way at all. So write in English because builders understand English. Don't feel that you need to use technical jargon or anything like that. Um, on, smaller, on smaller projects, it may be just as easy to walk into every single room of the property and write a list of what you want doing in there. So change the door, redecorate the wall, move, take a wall down, move a wall or what or whatever. Um, on slightly bigger projects, there may be some, some items like that that work for each room, and then there'll be some general items at the end, say like replace the heating system or rewire the house or um, redecorate the house, say. So... Um, so, so any, anything written down is is a bonus. So, don't, the first the, the first specification that anyone does is never ever going to be their best one. But do the first one, make the next one a little bit better. The next one after that will improve. Learn and go on, and don't worry about missing things out because even the experts, me included, we miss things out. There are so many things that can go on. You can only do your best to get it as accurate as possible. But, of course, the more accurate you can get it, the less questions you get later on. So if somebody is managing their project themselves, would they be expected to manage all of the trades or would you look to your main builder to run all of the subcontractors on your behalf? Um, so, yeah, that's a really good question. I, I have in my past run individual trades and it's hard, hard work. Um, and, and I've got experience in it and I wouldn't do it. So I don't recommend that to anyone. I recommend to find small general builders um, that yeah, quite often they're carpentry based and let them um, run the whole, you know, whole, run the whole project. Now, some investors say to me, but that adds more money into the scheme. And absolutely it will do. But the, the counter to that is what is the value of your time? Um, and, and if you're not micromanaging this project, could you go out and find the next project and the next um, investment for that project? And as a result, actually make far more money than you're potentially saving on the project you've got in front of you at the moment. So do you have, value your own time, but value your sanity. And it, you, it will drive you mad trying to manage individual tradesmen. It's hard, hard work. 
Yeah, I fully agree with that. You know, when we go down the refurbishment route, we've got a massive project on at the moment. Um, we've got a project where we're converting um, a massive, an old school into 25 flats. And I couldn't think of anything worse than having to manage all of the individual trades at certain um, certain phases through the project. Um, because no. I, I don't have those skills. But what we do have is we have a great builder who manages all of that for us on our behalf. So in effect, he is kind of becoming our project manager but he's not a qualified project manager, but we've worked with him in the past. I mean, when we look at allowing our building team, Martin, to go in and do the refurbishment project for us, what levels of inspection should we be doing and how often? Um, uh, so I tend to recommend in the early days, you're going to go there a couple of times a week, which is really to get reassurance that you know, the builder is doing what you're expecting him to do and you're building up the relationship in those early days but as the project goes on you, you shouldn't need to go there more than once a week um ultimately the builders won't want you there too often because all the time you you're there they feel obliged to talk to you and show you what they're doing and of course when they're doing that they're not working and therefore not earning any money so um it, it's about understanding or it's about building up that understanding with the builder that so to a point where you're happy that they don't need you to call in um, yeah, every day. And in fact, as I say, if you do go in every day, you'll be driving them mad. Generally on, on my projects, builders, sometimes they, don't, they won't see me for seven or eight working days. Uh, it really just depends you know, where they are in the scheme and, and how intense it is. But if literally they're just building, um, you know, putting partitions up and plastering it and painting it, why do you need to keep going in there? If you've given them a, 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 a nice a decent specification and maybe some drawings with some dimensions on you don't need to keep going back and and keeping an eye on them so there's no need to micromanage no no i don't uh, it's about selecting a builder in the first place that you don't need to micromanage and then that goes back to the previous point if you're not micromanaging the builder you can now go out and find the next deal and what, you're uh, and Who's responsible Sorry. for the, the health and safety aspect? So if you're not taking on a project manager, um, who, who does all that? I mean, do you need to do health and safety uh, reports and things on a, on a refurbishment? Um, so so uh, yes is the short answer. You need to delegate the health and safety to the contractor, to the builder, um, and it is their responsibility to manage the health and safety um, of that project, which is because it's going on in your property, ultimately falls back on you. So it's about selecting a good builder that you are happy is uh, managing the, the health and safety on the property uh, of the project and, you know, is running a tidy site and it is uh, insist, you know, it's got signs out the front and, uh, and, and, you know, is protected where appropriate to make sure no one's falling down holes or, or staircases and things like that. So, so as a, as a property investor, you are obliged, and you can't avoid health and safety. You are obliged to comply with the CDM regulations. They are construction design management regulations of 2015. But you can outsource a large chunk of that to the builder. Okay. This is a really interesting question, and I've got my own views on this. Do builders quotes? always reflect the real cost <laughs> um, i i think that to some extent it comes down to two things F 
first of all, how accurate is the, the initial specification of works or schedule of works? And the more accurate you can get that, the, the better the price you're going to get from the builder. But the other thing, of course, is there are always unknowns. And there's, there's unknowns that you cannot possibly foresee until you start stripping out some of these buildings. Um, and, of course, things like that always distort the figure. Um, I was talking to a client a few weeks ago, and they took down, um, they took out some cupboards in a bathroom and found that these cupboards were holding up the whole chimney stack above it. Um, and so, of course, as soon as they take the cupboards down, they had to support the chimney stack, and they had to bring in a structural engineer, and he had to design some steel to hold it all up, and then there was some steel to go in and work connected with all of that. Now, there's no way he would have known about that when he viewed the property. So so there are always going to be things like that that just mm. turn up and you've got to manage and deal with. So would that um, have come out if they'd had a structural survey? No, not no guarantee at all. No. So, so because they would still, possibly still have that added expense anyway? A- absolutely. In reality, the only way you can be sure about everything like that is, is really stripping out the whole building. Um, you know, the other common thing that I see where costs go is people take up the carpet, bearing in mind they've seen the property perhaps when someone's living in it, and they take up carpet and find there's woodworm or there's rotten flooring. Now, you wouldn't know that until you take the carpet up, and, and even some inspections wouldn't pick that up because even then they might only lift up a few corners of the carpet, and the cause and the problem might be right in the middle of the room, say. So in terms of due diligence when buying properties then, at what level do new investors have to go through? Do they need to employ damp specialists? Do they need timber specialists? Do they need woodwork and, you know, and, and structural specialists? Um, you know, in your experience, how far do you need to go? Um, I suppose it depends how – it partially depends on appetite for risk. If you want to tick all the boxes and be really sure that there aren't these problems, or if there are, you're aware of them, then by all means, bring in all of the experts um, prior to making an offer. But of course, that just adds time and cost in. um, And and most investors in the end would just say, well, it's a risk item. There's going to be some good projects. There's going to be some, you know, somewhere I don't spend much extra. There's going to be others where I spend you know, a little bit more than I expected. Um, I think often the clues, the clues to these problems are often there, um, staining on the brickwork externally. Um, you know, it suggests that something might be going on. Yeah, you know, maybe the gutters are leaking or something like that. Um, you know, signs of poor quality brickwork externally. If you see that, go inside, look on the inside of it um, and see if there's any evidence. If there's a patch of something looking damp on the outside, some properties you'll go inside and find there's a cupboard in front of it because that's been put there to cover up the damp patch on the inside. So um, uh, something for you here, Rick, turn into a detective, you know, go into these and look for for people that have um, covered over and you know, if they're selling a property that's run down and some of the rooms are being repainted, there's a massive clue there immediately that there's something being hidden away. So perhaps that's the, they're the one, the properties to get experts in to give you some reassurance about. 
Okay. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I, I you know, I like the um, I like your answer where you say it depends on your appetite of risk, um, and I suppose it depends on the deal as well. There are all sorts of different factors that that we can put in there. Really, I know Martin that you also invest yourself, and you've got quite a diverse portfolio. So I know that you have HMOs and normal houses and and flats. I mean, what is your preferred strategy of investing? Um, well, so I suppose the, the the flats have come about because we bought uh, a larger block, partially commercial, partially flats, and converted the rest of that. So, so that's something that we've converted to rent. So, ended up holding those. Um, the HMOs are, uh, of course, um, I, I, I suppose really they're the cash flowing um, side side of our business. Um, uh, so we got we picked up some HMOs, uh, two through writing to landlords generally, and one was advertised on the open market. Um, uh, actually, that one was a dentist surgery that we converted into an HMO. But per se, HMOs, I think, are the way forwards. Uh, we'll be back out in 2018 looking for some more HMOs to add to to our portfolio because they are, yeah, for us, a, a good a, a good cash generation. And what do you think um, the future lies for HMOs? Um, I, I, th- I think the thing with HMOs is I think it's a continually moving um, audience, really. Um, when I ca- when I first saw HMOs, now, which would have been probably now six years ago, uh, any any property with with five bedrooms was an HMO. Then, then there was realization that you had to make your property stand out from the others, and uh, and and there's uh, yeah, other people out there, uh, you know, talking about colours and decoration and and staging these properties a, a lot better. And of course, now the vogue is to do more of these um, warehouse style American um, uh, New York style apartments, moving on to the next. Um, the, you know, the, the next client, and and I think the, the, it's because because it's the younger, yeah. There's a lot of younger people wanting to move out from home, and and by necessity going towards HMOs. I think it's going to be a continually moving. Um, de- it's a demographic that are continually reviewing what they want and expecting other things. So I think it is going to be. Uh, yeah, a kind of market that's going to continually change, and to keep ahead of it, it's it's about you know keeping up to speed, reading the magazines, um, taking advice, getting to the networking events to to hear people's ideas on it, so you can keep can keep ahead of the market. I mean, not everybody likes networking. I, I mean, some people sort of will just shudder at the thought of going out and talking to strangers they've never met before. How how important do you think it is to go networking? Um, well, I would say just about everything that's ever happened to me since I set up my own business, I could link back to something that came from a networking event. Um, yeah, and I just think, how did I come to be at the first property networking event? Well, that was because I met someone at a breakfast networking event. How did I come to be at the breakfast networking event? Well, because I went to an exhibition and met someone else who did a lot of networking and they said you won't get anywhere if you don't go to breakfast networking mm. and so i think networking is important and and generally i i am not outgoing so networking is hard work for me 
and and even though I've been doing it six years, it's still hard work for me. But I know that the business doesn't work without it. Um, so you kind of get out there, you get your own style, you get your own way of networking. And I don't, I'm not one of these people that can go into a room of of 20 people and have and have spoken to all of them before the end of the night. I've go in and I might have spoken to two of them. But that's two more than I would have spoken to if I hadn't even turned up. It's, it is reassuring words because I do know, and we do say a lot on the podcast, we do kind of talk about networking quite a lot. And it is super, super important that people get out into these networks because you don't know who you're going to meet and you don't know how you can either help them or they can help you. And, you know, networking has been a fundamental part of our growing of our business, certainly in the early stages and even, you know, still now, um, because you there are people in the room that are like minded individuals looking for similar things. And, you know, we say that you become um, either plus or minus is it 10% of the people that you spend most of yeah. your time with so Martin let's talk about books are you an avid book reader um no in fact when well, more recently I've been listening to books on on um yeah one of the online portals so um so I have phases to be honest and sometimes when I'm driving uh, I'll listen so uh, uh yeah but yeah certainly yeah got got ideas of books and 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 I think that's one of the other things, you know, if it's not networking that I've learned from, it's it's books that I've learned things from and not always books totally related to um, to property. So what was your all-time favourite book that you've taken most inspiration from? Well, well that, that kind of kind of comes out from that previous statement, really, because I, I, the book that really resonated with me um, was the, the autobiography of um, Clive Woodward, the um, England... Um, rugby manager mm. uh, and the thing that I really took from that which ca- actually is something that I still teach relating to project management was part of the reason that yeah, England got so good as a, as a rugby team w- was was to do with he, uh, Clive's um, preparation and wanting to make sure that no little stone was left o- unturned and that, and that everything was prepared, not just the fitness of the players and the pitches and the diet and the exercise, but also the legal side of things were covered. And they, and, they, and, and something really interesting, they, they were going off to play a match um, and, and they sent the coach down the, the route of the, the, they had, the players had to go by coach um, from hotel to the match and they sent the coach the day before to work out how busy the traffic was so that the driver didn't get delayed. And, and, and in many ways, that's, that to me is, is project management. It's about closing off as many little niggles as you can find along the way to make sure that the project goes as smoothly as possible. Yeah, it's project management, absolutely, and running, you know, it's business, isn't it? And everything's a business at the end of the day. It is, really, yes. Martin, last question. Cat or dog? Uh, really easy really really easy dog every day of the week dog's winning at the moment you know this week we've had almost every apart from one person that said fish and that kind of wasn't an option (laughs) but they said fish dog's winning why dogs over cats what's your reason um my my grandparents my other family have had dogs for years i've always grown up around dogs and and i'm allergic to cats so 
dogs always win. Absolutely. And what better reason? Martin, it's been an absolute pleasure interviewing today. I'm hoping that, you know, the listeners are going to get some absolute massive value from this. You've got a wealth of knowledge and wealth of experience and, you know, some, some really good practical tips on this podcast from start to finish that a lot of people would, you know, be panicking about and didn't really know the answers to. So thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and experience with us. And if our listeners want to reach out to you, how can they contact you? Um, so you can find find me on Facebook. Uh, that's the easiest way. That's Martin Rapley, of course. Um, my, You can find us on Facebook as Refurbishment Masterclass. Uh, there's regular videos on there, hints and tips to help with refurbishment. Uh, there'll be me walking around sites talking about things that are going on, but um, pictures and other things like that. And, of course, you can send me an email to martin at refurbishmentmasterclass.co.uk. Fantastic. Martin, thank you so much once again. It's been an absolute pleasure. That's all right. It's great speaking to you, Rick. Thanks very much. Thank you. If you are interested in any of our property mentoring services, then please contact me via my website, which is www.neweraPropertySolutions.co.uk. And please don't forget to take a look at my five times best-selling book, House Arrest. House Arrest is a manual for new property investors, which shows you how you can replace your income by investing in property that's available on kindle it's available on paperback and it's also available on the audible store